get a cup of coffee in here, please? not really that hot uh it's okay it's not it's not all that hot though but it's strong and that's what's really important is that your coffee is strong we uh coffee with the dog good morning it is uh what the hell day is it it's wednesday you know when you're like me you never know what what day it is if, if once you stop working in the real world uh and going to an office where people are count on knowing what day it is you give up on that stuff it becomes not unimportant to you so it's wednesday but that here's the important thing the day before thanksgiving here uh in america and where i live wednesday before thanksgiving is the big day if you're a musician uh it's the big earning day first of all uh the clubs are packed on the night before why I guess everybody has off two days, uh, has a four-day weekend coming up. A lot of people do. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So Wednesday night, tomorrow's going to be around with family and all that stuff. So they're going to go out and party big time tonight. So it's a big night for people like me, musicians who are out working. And uh, a lot of corporate gigs today because a lot of people are having <clears throat> office parties and all that stuff before they get away. So uh, I have uh, three gigs today couple of i have to drive 100 miles to play an hour for a nursing home then do a corporate thing on the way home and then the club thing tonight so i don't have any shows uh scheduled for the uh mind dog tv podcast today uh we are uh going to be talking in just a moment to uh michael hilliard who's an independent journalist uh michael is somebody i respect tremendously because too often in the world today, uh, when we hear from journalists, you are very aware of their bias and uh, what what their agenda is. Uh, I've interviewed Michael several times now, and um, I have no idea what his bias is. And I've tried to trip him up on it, to get him to show some kind of bias in some way, ask him questions that would kind of Give me some hint to what his bias is, and I don't have it. And so you have to respect that, folks. If, if you're looking for independent thought, uh, somebody who's just going to give you facts and let you decide what they mean, uh, Michael and his podcast, the Red Line Podcast, are the place to go. Now, we're going to be talking about uh, today something that, you know, last time Michael was uh, on the Mind Dog TV podcast, um, I wanted to get him on because he was talking about his up he was doing a little promo for his upcoming podcast about China and the threat that they set, uh they posed as far as infrastructure and hacking into IT and all that kind of stuff and I had an early program for him on that day because he's in another part of the world where the time zone's much different so I did it at 6 a.m. 
and we had an hour chat and he educated me a lot about China's uh, capabilities and what they would do and what they might do. And by the time I got ready to do my one o'clock show, my milk TV podcast, uh, news was breaking that China had uh, hacked the uh, United States uh, data that a grid and all that kind of stuff. Michael's the kind of guy who's right on top of the game. So today, I, uh, I've i been very interested in what's going on in Ethiopia. And a couple of days ago, or early last week, I saw Michael promoing podcasts he was doing on Ethiopia. Guy's always right on top of what's really happening in the world that most people don't really know about. Most people, when we hear from the mainstream media, they don't cover you don't hear a word about Ethiopia or what's going on over there. So I'm curious about what really is going on there and what it means to the rest of the world. I see he's in backstage now waiting patiently. I'm going to bring him in. He's the host of the Redline podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome back Michael Hilliard. Michael, welcome. Hey, it's great to be back. It's it's good to have you here. Now, I don't, look, I don't. I got to get a background for the morning stuff. I haven't done any interviews on you. <laughs> morning program yet so you're my first actually i've had call-ins but not uh visual stuff thank you i'm glad to be here um so before we talk about ethiopia what i want to know what's really going on in australia because i've had lots of guests on from australia in the last couple of months and, and people in the news here have a uh a different opinion and i have lots of people on social media tell me it's all hell in australia they are ready for revolution we see uh stuff a film about protests gigantic size protests down there and then i have guests on and i say what's going on they say well we're still on their lockdown but everybody's remaining patient it's nice and it's not really that bad i want to get your perspective what's going on so australia we see all the news as well about the us coming to liberate us and i think it's always it's pretty funny from being being where we are so when the pandemic started, the federal government really didn't have a grip on what to do and effectively handed control of how to handle the pandemic to the states. So every state's had a different response. So my state, I'm in the west of the country, uh, in the, I'm in, uh, in Western Australia, uh, has a Labor government, which is effectively centre-left. Uh, you'd imagine it'd be close to the British Labor, Labor government, uh, who went very, very harsh on the pandemic. Uh, so effectively, at the very beginning of it, you... You know, we were putting people on an island off the coast and saying, we'll come pick you up if you need hospital, uh, <laughs> you know, hospital services. Otherwise, you're staying on an island. Uh, even now, when you get into the airport, you know, you fly in, you've then got to go uh, get a bubble bus to a hotel and you sit at the hotel for two weeks uh, under armed guard. Um, and then, then you can go back into society. The difference, though, is the fact that we've had uh, nine community cases and zero deaths uh, when it comes to uh, you know, deaths from the community, you know, deaths in the community. Every we've had only sorry, we've had seven deaths in total, uh, and the, all seven of those are people who died in a hotel room or from complications that they got overseas and then came over here. Wow! Uh, so we've effectively had you know even our lockdowns. So we went really really harsh really early. So effectively, when we had uh, what ten cases in the state, we locked the whole state down. Uh, which everyone at the time went, this is really harsh, uh, and we locked down for four weeks solidly. Uh, and then we opened up and it was a gradual opening. Everyone could get back to normal, but bars, you know, you'd have like bars had restrictions, only half capacity and everyone would try and go outside. Um, and then from there, it kind of eased up and eased up and eased up. And then we had another uh, five-day lockdown um, in the middle of the pandemic because someone broke quarantine uh, and effectively we had one case. So the whole state locked down for five days, but 
out of that five weeks at the start, the five days in the middle, everything's been normal. You know, everything is effectively life back to normal. And it's very weird when, you know, particularly Christmas of 2020, I was sort of sitting in the pool with my family and friends and and getting living a pretty normal life. Uh, and then seeing friends locked in their apartments in New York and, and stuck and, and death tolls and the whole thing. So, you know, our GDP is the other one that's really interesting is actually growing over the pandemic because because we have no COVID here, we could do all the manufacturing no one else could. Um, so it's been, the COVID pandemic's actually been pretty good here. We, you know, business is up, prices are up, um, you know, profits are up, wages are up, uh, and effectively uh, it's been a pretty decent run at it. Obviously the borders are about to open again, um, but we're pretty good with our vaccination rates. We're now, if we were a US state, we'd be in the top 10. We're up to about 79 to 80%. Who are fully vaxxed. Um, there are protests, and originally the protests were really small. Uh, the very first anti-lockdown protest had six people and eight journalists covering it, which was pretty funny to me. Um, <laughs> uh, but the protests, the protests are, you know, they're they're loud, they're big, they're here, and they do, you know, they do make up a percentage of the society. Uh, but they pull less numbers than a Wiggles concert would. Um, we're talking, you know, five thousand is the thing, the biggest we've had here. Uh, and that is, you know, not a particularly huge protest. Uh, yeah. You know, even even uh, the protest supporting, you know, West Papua was bigger than that one. And West Papua is an issue that I don't think ever comes up in any, any right. discourse ever. So uh, it's yeah. just to, to give people a little bit of context here, because they hear those numbers that are pretty small and they think, well, that's just silly. But uh, the fact is, Australia has the population of florida but it's almost as big as the entire united states geographically so keep mm. that in mind the number the numbers game don't really compare to here but still that's those ridic ridiculous well, we're, we're still you know per capita we're one of the lowest but again we've had a lot of advantages that you know as much as the australian strategy of, of effectively locking down as soon as possible containing and long lockdowns to try and knock this thing is really only a strategy open to the australians you know as much as the U.S. could point and say, "Look, you know, we should do that." It doesn't won't quite work. So, for instance, my state—if you were to lay it on its side—would go from L.A. to New Orleans. It's a huge state, right. but there are only three roads coming into my state. With three cop cars, you can shut the state down. That's just something that a Pennsylvania or a Florida or an Ohio or even a New York could not do. It's just impossible. Right. Um, you know, we're also an island. Uh, we can shut all our border infrastructure is already incredibly tight. Uh, you're more likely to smuggle a kilo of cocaine in here than you are a fruit or vegetable. <laughs> um, you know, and that, that, so we've had a lot of this infrastructure ready to go. And it's something that also we don't talk about a lot is one of the UN's head of disease control uh, had actually retired in the wine country about an hour south of where I live. Um, so when the pandemic broke out, we did the whole 80s movie thing of like, go down to his house, bang on the door, like, we need you to come back for one last job. So we've we, again, we've had all this luck. We're in the best possible position, and we played our cards well. Um, would you know? Should the US do exactly what Australia did? Maybe, probably not. I mean, it's it's if you'd lock down on day one, yeah, maybe. But by that point, by the time the US was even having the decisions about lockdowns, the the horse had bolted from the stable, and it gets to damage minimization rather than eliminating, which is what we went through. Right? Is it is it a political hot potato over there as much as it is here or are we the no. only ones in the, in the world who are making this this uh, left right issue 
so we the, it is actually but it's a it's a bit of a left right issue everywhere but that's because everyone watches u.s politics okay so australia is really interesting in the fact that if you go to a bar in australia one in ten will tell you who the deputy prime minister is which is effectively our vice president you know we just don't follow our own politics Right. But if you ask an Australian about U.S. politics, they were like, "Well, Maricopa County is probably going to go, you know, probably going to go to the Democrats <laughs> because it's this percent Latino." And rah, 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 rah. you know, we follow U.S. politics because it's much more interesting. You know, our, our, our politics is, is you know, uh, Mr. Chairman, I do say this budget will probably put it up by three point three point four percent. Well, that's really interesting. Whereas your politics, you know, you're calling each other communists, you're calling each other fascists. It's just, it's much more entertaining to watch. Um, so we tend to follow your politics. So wow. over here, so we had our big referendum, uh, a big state election over here, for instance. Um, and the left-leaning party who had been the very, very pro-lockdown party, they had been lockdowns the whole way, they had been mandates the whole way. Uh, they had even talked about enforcing vaccines at that point. They had really, really, you know, gone on the side of, you know, we're going to be vaccine guys. Um, and they won 53 out of the 56 seats in our parliament. Um, wow. Like a blowout to the point where the entire right wing party over here can fit in a Kia car, like a Kia car, like it can fit in a Corolla. Um, wow. So it's it's a very different thing out here. And I think there was a few things we did interestingly different to the US. Uh, one of the starting ones was effectively we bought a lot of these anti-vax kind of types on television shows and actually put them in front of epidemiologists and just watched the epidemiologists just tear them apart a little bit um we also have a very kind of different sense of patriotism and this is what i find is really interesting between the australians and the americans is you know when we had ads with soldiers at the very start of the pandemic going you know hi i went to afghanistan to defend freedom and defend your right and rah, 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 rah. now this is your turn this is your front line defend your countrymen you know wear a mask um and i think there was a lot more camaraderie and a lot more patriotism in 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 you know when people were wearing masks it was a lot of Look, I hate this thing. It makes me sweaty. I'm breaking out in acne, but you know it's going to save grandma's life and it's going to save my countrymen. I'll do it. Um, so again, there is a percentage of people here who are, you know, there are a percentage of people here who walk around wearing MAGA hats. It's it's pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't understand it either. Uh, it does it the A stand for Australia or America? It doesn't. That's the funny <laughs> bit. Um, you know, there's a there's a guy who had on, my, on a bus stop near my house. There's stop hashtag stop the steal, and I went, "What are you talking about? You live in Perth." <laughs> um, so unless he's talking about the car robberies around here or something, I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, so it, it's much less of a politicized issue here, and much more of a, you know, we're in this together. We're a society. I don't need this. You don't need this. But this will save grandma's life. Um, let's I really want to move to Australia. It sounds like we'd I love mean, to, we'd love we'd love to have you. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a better place for me. Uh, just before we get to Ethiopia, one last on Australia. Uh, did you hear? Uh, I'm sure you've heard uh, that Candace Owens uh, wants to invade Australia. <laughs> and what what is the re what was the reaction from people in Australia? Did they laugh that off or? or... So it it was a, a incredibly funny reaction of of. You know, the defense, everyone who works in defense went, well, you're already here. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, you know, the U.S. have quite a lot of bases sitting in Australia. Uh, yeah. In fact, <laughs> they've got a large base not far from here. It's a large naval facility. Um, so we all just went, yeah, you're already here. What are you talking about? You've already invaded us. Right. Um, you know, obviously, I don't think many people over here take Candace Owens very seriously. Um, 
you know, it's it was it was eye catching. She made Australian news. She got all the airplay she wanted out of it, so it was clever. You know, she's. Um, in fact, if I were a cynical man, I'd say that right now, where our you know Rupert Murdoch papers effectively are, are hiring more of these sort of U.S. pundit talk shows, uh, and Candace Owens would love one. And by saying they should invade Australia, she was on all the Australian television stations, which was probably good timing if she's going to tr- trying for that contract. Right. Um, so as a cynical man, I think it was probably a play to get some eyeballs in Australia. Would it happen? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Um, now moving to the subject, why I, I asked you to come here today. Now, first of all, how are you always, uh, I, I'm obviously you do your homework, but it just seems like every time, uh, I'm learning about something that's really important going on in the world, you're right on, on the edge of that. Uh, what, what is your method for staying on top of, because, uh, nobody here hears about any of this stuff in the from the mainstream news and even if you're searching the internet a lot all you're going to get on on the internet is people commenting on what other people said about politicians people commenting on what mainstream media says you get a lot of that opinions about CNN's coverage of this or Fox News coverage of that but nobody uh, is getting right to the issues beforehand as i mentioned the china stuff last time you were here now ethiopia how, how do you, how are you what is your method for for being on top of the uh, uh, ahead of the curve uh, when it comes to uh, what's really important in in the small stories that well not small stories but coverage small stories mm. that are uh, that are out there so we do a lot of homework uh, sometimes we do get lucky when we did a I remember we did a hypothetical, we did a piece on private military operations and actually talked about what would happen if someone hired a bunch of private military guys to knock out the Venezuelan leadership in exchange for oil contracts. And we actually even said Florida, Florida based company. And it happened about three weeks after we said it. Uh, and then I even have my friend from CIA go, Did you know something we didn't? And I went, No, I didn't actually. That was a lucky guess, that one. Uh, but the majority <laughs> of it is we look at a lot of logistics. And that's a, that's a really interesting, you know. You can fight wars, but to fight a war properly, you actually need to build up and get ready quite well. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when people say, oh, Russia's about to invade Ukraine, the thing we're actually looking for is, you know, if if Russia was actually going to invade Ukraine, they would start canceling leave passes for officers. Uh, they would be uh, starting to commandeer trains uh, in the south region. They would be likely starting to shift some of their short-range uh, air, air uh, surface-to-air missile, uh, mobile battalions westward. Uh, we'd see the stock price in Arask go up because Arask is very close to the Russian defense contractors. Um, you know, it's things like that that we watch. And when signs like that happen, we know, okay, that's actually a real threat to watch because obviously there are a bunch of people at the moment pounding their chest. But it's when you are actually, you know, it's the difference between waving a gun around and actually loading the gun before you wave it. You go, okay, this guy's actually serious. Gotcha. Um, there, there are telltale signs, but even that takes a lot of homework and a lot hmm. of knowing where to look for these kind of things. And the information out of these countries has got to be really uh, hard it's to get. It's incredibly right? painful. So I spent years as a conflict journalist traveling to all of these countries, uh, and I bought drinks for almost everyone around the world <laughs> at some yeah. point uh, and effectively just have a, a nice wide network of, you know, when I need, when I have a rumor come down the pipe to me that something's going on in Kenya, then I'll call my guy who specializes in Kenya and he will give me three dudes who I'll talk to. And uh, yeah. I just spend a lot of time on WhatsApp and chatting and uh, doing favors for other people who will do favors for me later on and uh, effectively just have a, a nice little network of people on the ground. 
uh, to call when I need. Well, I want to promote you as much and what you do as much as we possibly can and get as many people aware that you're out there because I think uh, there's some real importance to these stories that most of us overlook. Now, moving on to Ethiopia, I've had two guests on this program, both Americans who are Ethiopian by uh, birth, came to this country very young first one i became friends with his name is yoel and i said this was about a year ago i said um i've never been to um ethiopia i didn't know much about it but i was surprised by some of the videos and and images i saw out of there that it's not the third world country i was led to believe it seems to be a very modern country in a lot of ways their infrastructure makes america look pretty silly (laughs) and and small uh but he said you know you should go Hmm. You should go to Ethiopia. And so, okay, uh, and and I've been in uh, contact with him. He's a friend now, and we we write back and forth. And then last two weeks ago, I had a deacon on who was uh, from Ethiopia and very active in what's going on. And then he wanted to educate me on what's going on. And he said, well, there's a civil war. I said, well, what happened, Yoel? You told me I should go there. You forgot to mention one little little reason I shouldn't go there. Uh, So, uh, and, and I've been... The deacon told me what what the war is about, but in his terms, because he's got he's got an agenda in it. I know you don't, which is why I, I want to get the straight dope from you. What's going on? So it's it's a very tragic and and sad story that is it is effectively what is happening here will affect for the next three years all of East Africa. So Ethiopia, very right, is very modern. It's one of the centers of of business and trade in the African Union. It is. You know, if you're doing business in uh, in East Africa, if you're an NGO, if you're a diplomat, you would base yourself at Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, uh, and they were the kind of granddaddy of the region. Now, they were also known as the great peacekeepers because effectively Ethiopia was sending peacekeepers to you know Mozambique and the Central African Republic and Sudan and South Sudan and, and Somalia and Kenya and you know, because they were, you know, the soldiers were really well trained. They were well disciplined. They didn't loot and pillage like a lot of other countries might. They were great soldiers and they were effectively the thing keeping the lid on the entire East African region. So effectively, until very recently, there's a group in the sort of the very, very top tip of Ethiopia in this kind of uh, almost, you know, upside down and reversed L shape called the Tigrayans. It's a tribe of Ethiopia. It's right near the Eritrean border. These guys were the fighters of Ethiopia, and they've been the frontline guys for decades now. You know, whenever Ethiopia needed shock forces, they were always Tigrayans. Uh, the Tigrayans are the guys who effectively beat the Eritreans back. They're the guys who beat the Somalis back. They're the guys who beat the Soviets. They, you know, before the Soviets eventually start, aligned with them, and you know, yeah, that's a whole other thing. Um, but effectively, the Tigrayans were about fifteen to sixteen to seventeen percent of the population, for who you ask, uh, and they fought their way and became the big power brokers if you were the president if you were high up in government if you were a, a head of a department you were to grind so this minority of people was controlling the country for decades uh, and they effectively to grinds would rule everything and that's how ethiopia was run that this right. tribe of 17 percent ruled over the bigger tribes now so, I'm, I'm curious though you just said there, there was an alliance with from with the Tigrayans, I don't, I don't not pronouncing okay. that right. Tigrayans and the Soviet U, Soviet Union, so, but I'm led to believe that the Tigrayans are the rebel forces against the Marxist government. Do I have that wrong? So 
here, so it's a bit, it's very complicated. So effectively, at one point, the the US was supporting Ethiopia and the Soviets were supporting Somalia. And then they started fighting and then effectively there was a coup in Ethiopia and they went uh, they went and aligned themselves with the Soviets. So then the Somalians then aligned themselves with the Americans. They switched sides and went back to war. And that's kind of where we get to the 1990s with the Americans supporting the Somalis and the Soviets supporting a government in Ethiopia. Okay. The Zagrayans were one of the major guys to throw off the Soviet government, the Derg regime. Because uh, the Derg was a guy who was a very, very tight in with the Soviet government. This was right at the end of the Cold War. So effectively, the Ethiopians, because of the Tigrayans, threw off the Soviets and became the republic they are today. And at that point, then they have an, another civil war and they split between the Eritreans, who are an ex-Italian colony, uh, and the Ethiopians, who are the Ethiopians. So that's the sort of really, really <laughs> glossing over a lot of uh, history here. But yeah, that's how we got to here. Right. So the Tigrayans have been the the warriors, the fighters, the shock troops, the the guys in power. Cut to sort of about ten years ago, about six years ago, eight eight years ago, uh, and a guy named uh, Abi comes to power. Uh, he's an Oromo. Now Oromo is the biggest tribe in Ethiopia, and he comes to power on a the major the majority tribe should have majority rule, and it was the first time the Tigrayans had lost power in decades in Ethiopia. So he came in. He actually won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, because effectively he managed to end the end the, in the stalemate war with Eritrea. He ended up starting lots more peacekeeping operations. He brought a lot more investment into African banks that would then go out to African nations. He did some real good in the first bits of his presidency, uh, and that's he's still the president today. So then the Tigrayans went, well, we don't we don't want to we don't want this because obviously they didn't want this because they'd lost power. They were they'd have decades of them ruling, and now they don't want. Any of the, the Orumos to be ruling, they wanted the Tigrayans to be ruling. So <coughs> there was meant to be an election uh, in the midst of the COVID pandemic around May. Uh, and then the uh, Tigrayans went, well, you know, so the Orumos went, let's push the election back to October. The Tigrayans went, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to have the election now. Uh, the Ethiopians or the, the Ethiopian government said, well, we're not going to recognize that. And the Tigrayans pushed ahead. So now the trouble was sitting with the Ethiopian government that because Ethiopia is effectively it's very much known as a mosaic nation, that there are, yes, there are Rumos and the Tigrayans, but there's also the Somalis and, and all these other tribes. And if one of them managed to pull away, there is a definite worry in Addis Ababa that the country then shatters into 12 nations. And everyone goes, you know, we don't want that. So generals in the Ethiopian government went, well, if we go stamp out the Tigrayan government quickly, then we can prove to the other nations that we can control from the central power and there'll be no more separatism. We can keep Ethiopia together and strong. And at the time, the Tigrayans were in a weak position. So uh, they ordered the, uh, ordered the attacks. And the very first attacks of the war were quite successful. Um, the Tigrayans got whacked and effectively pushed back into, uh, they even lost their capital city, Mekaleb, and effectively got pushed back into the hills. What we no one accounted for is the fact that the Tigrayans are really, really good fighters. And the Ethiopians had, even though the, their forces may be a majority Oromo, most of the generals were Tigrayans. So all the good leadership and all the good management left, to which the Oromos and the rest of the tribes of the sort of Ethiopian government, as we're going to call it, uh, then got to a point where they're running out of fuel, they're running out of ammunition, they're, you know, every fight battle they're fighting, they're losing three times the men the Tigrayans are. And at this point, Ethiopia has all of its peacekeepers around the region and it starts calling them back. 
So the only thing keeping, let's say, Al-Shabaab in, uh, which is the terrorist organization in, in Somalia in check, was Ethiopian peacekeepers, who are now being pulled back for the fight. So uh-huh. because they couldn't beat the Tigrayans, they then went real nasty with it. They went to starvation tactics. They cut all the phone lines. They cut all the internet lines. They cut all the roads in and out of Tigray uh, and effectively tried to starve them to death. To give you an idea, the UN says that to feed the Tigrayans and keep them just at starvation rations, they need about 60 trucks a day to get through the blockade. And the Ethiopians were allowing two every three months to come through. Um, It was real, real, real nasty. Uh, You know, when we started looking at satellite photos of this, when we first started peering into this story, you can see these sort of Tigrayan villages with uh, blue dots everywhere. And I asked my sort of contact you know, who works at State, and goes, what are these blue dots? I don't understand. He goes, oh, well, the Tigrayans can't get messages out and they know we're watching by satellite, so they've started painting the mass graves blue. Wow. So it got real nasty. Pretty, um, pretty strange. Now, <laughs> the day I contacted you about educating me on this stuff that night and it, it, this is why i need you because i i don't know i don't know what to trust in mainstream media that night i read a thing that uh the tigrayans were about to take control of the main road because you were talking about yep. uh, when you talk about three roads in your country before i was thinking about this the main road that will lead to the capital and they're about to kind of overthrow the government this was six days ago yep uh, is so- that accurate it is. So effectively, what, so that was where the situation was at about two months ago. And the Tigrayans actually gathered their forces up and gave a big whack to the Ethiopians and smashed the Ethiopian forces. So now they are pushing, effectively pushing towards the capital. Uh, US diplomats are fleeing. Banks are fleeing. People are, who are holidaying are being told to leave. Uh, and we are preparing for what could be bloodshed in Addis Ababa because the Tigrayans have been starved to death for months. They're now out for revenge. The Tigrayan leadership is effectively deciding right now whether what is priority to try and take Addis as quick as possible or to go and cut the road to Djibouti. Now, Djibouti is kind of a really small nation that borders Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia, that it's effectively really, really, really tiny on a map, but it has US, UK, Italian, Chinese, and Japanese bases there. It's just a giant military base on the Red Sea, (laughs) effectively. There is a worry that, let's say, if that road remains open, that the US or someone else may send forces in to stop the bloodshed. So they're trying to make sure that they don't, you know, if the US go down the road to stop the bloodshed, that's peacekeepers. If, let's say, the Tigrayans blockading the road, then the US worry that if they kill the Tigrayans, that's actually entering the war on the side of the Ethiopians. Um, And after Biden's rhetoric, there's been, you know, worries in the Tigrayan camp. I don't think the US will get involved very much, but the Tigrayans are, are, are worried about it. So we are at the point now where the Tigrayans are effectively right at the doorstep of the capital, Addis Ababa. Uh, They are now diverting their forces to try and cut the Djibouti roads. Uh, And now the decision is, you know, does Abi step aside? Uh, With which all of the, he's still very popular with the Oromos. He's still very popular with some of the Southern tribes, including the Somalis. Um, Does he step aside? Does, is there going to be a coup in Addis before the Tigrayans get there? And I hope the bloodshed doesn't happen. Will there be a battle for Addis Ababa? Uh, effectively, it's that logistics problem that the Tigrayans have pushed as far as the logistics train can easily get them. Now they're gathering up their fuel, their food, their ammunition, their everything they need to decide whether they go for the big push. Uh, because if it goes to Addis, you know, 
fighting in in the hills is actually really it's it's much easier than fighting street to street yeah, because yeah. every you know you drive a tank down the down a, busy, a crowded road it's really easy for someone to just plonk it from the top so there's a genuine worry that you know if they go into Addis and they lose too many men the same way the Ethiopians did in Mekele, uh that the Tigrayans may have you back on the back foot again because right now they are on the front foot right so the the really really terrible thing about this conflict though is not only is there's just lots of dead and lots of you know because it's an ethnic war now uh there's prisons are being mistreated women are being yeah. uh, sexually attacked um you know it's, it's a real, real real nasty conflict at the moment but all of the peacekeepers ethiopia has in the region have been returned so all of the conflicts in central african republic in south sudan in mozambique in somalia in you know all of these countries are now without the peacekeepers uh so already al-shabaab is making gains in somalia that they haven't made made in years wow. so not only is this a, a possibility of shattering in ethiopia but this is also now just you know effectively taking the boot off the neck of every terrorist group in east africa oh my. Uh, and on top of that the us is you know right now not not really looking to get involved in a lot of conflicts right there is no one left to actually fight these guys so we're going to see particularly in northern kenya southern somalia uh central african republic is is already an absolute bun fight uh, mozambique the russians just left with their tail between the legs um it's not looking good and this is this is a conflict that not only will uh, really really cripple ethiopia and also people's trust in africa um and african investments because the aim always was you know i'm happy to invest in africa because i know it's ethiopia ethiopia was solid as a rock right. no problem there now if i'm an investor i'm going to go well look how quickly ethiopia fell apart why should i bother which is going to set back not only african investment not only african peacekeepers but you know it's effectively this was the this was the big thing that we were all supposed to build upon to form a solid well-funded reasonable africa and it's now just crumbled in the space of effectively four months all right so help me understand here if this government falls and the rebels take over yeah. is there a chance that after the dust settles, it kind of blows over and normalizes back to kind of Ethiopia being the stabilizing force in Northeast Africa again, or is it, will it be a completely different uh, entity that we're dealing with? Then? There's a chance it will go back to just what it was before Abe. Um, so with the Tigrayans in power and, you know, uh, you know, a, major, a minority rule effectively again, right. But, that you know the minority rule was achieved when they hadn't all just killed a big batch of each other you know when they were all fairly fairly happy to get along with each other now you know if you're a tigrayan who has watched four of your family members die through artillery shells and two of your children starve to death because of the blockades you're not going to just peacefully walk into artists and be happy to shake the arumo's hands right um and that's the real trouble is you know, even if the Tigrayan leadership and the, and the Oromo leadership and everyone can shake hands, we don't know what the average soldier who maybe has a you know a primary school education um, and is not really ready for you know to understand what to do here and and yeah, it's it's a problem. 
Right. We don't know how anyone's going to react yet. What are you talk about the soldiers having that conflict and not knowing, you know, basically how they are going to, what about the populace? Because I, I bring this up here with the people, you know, and who knows where we're really at, but the people who, who use the word civil war and throwing that around here. And I try to explain to them what that really means. I mean, it means being ready to kill your neighbors and friends and family mm-hmm. and, and stuff is the populace. <sighs> energized and emotionally attached to this conflict or are they uh they just kind of uh being taken along for the ride so with with most conflicts whether it be you know rwanda whether it be even the united states it's not the majority that's the problem you know it's that bell curve problem of the majority of people aren't going to kill their neighbors you know as much as my neighbor can be really loud at about 3 a.m i'm not going to kill him um even i'm probably not going to kill him (laughs) but the the trouble is the sort of very loud five percent on either side uh, who will start going door to door who will start ramping up people based on ethnic groups and then you get the problem of you know if your parents are to grind then you're likely going to identify as a to grind and even if you you know don't really care that much about the the plight of the to grinds but you are ethnically to grind because and you're working in Addis Ababa because hell you're you know that's where the jobs are are you going to then be targeted uh, because there's already worry and already a lot of people in government in Ethiopia, in the Addis Ababa at the moment, saying, let's round up the Tigrayans so they can't support them when the Tigrayans get here to fight. Right. And they might be saboteurs. Let's round them up. Which, you know, half of you goes, okay, that kind of makes a little bit of sense because you don't want them helping the Tigrayans when they get there. But the other half of you says it's just throwing fuel on the fire because then all the Tigrayan soldiers go, well, they've just put all our guys in camps. Let's go liberate this thing now rather than having any chance of possibly solving this peacefully, which is what everyone hopes. Everyone hopes that some peace deal can be done. Maybe the Tigrayans get more independence. Maybe they get more autonomy. Maybe the Tigrayans can get, you know, uh, big parts of the government. Uh, But we can keep Ethiopia together. Uh, But the moment you start rounding up people and putting them in camps, that's when it becomes a, okay, we have to liberate everyone and it's hell for leather on all sides. Right. Uh, Um, I... You mentioned Australians uh, are uh, hip on American politics, and I think probably more so than than even most Americans, because most Americans, while they're emotionally into politics at this point in in our history, are not very well educated on what's really going on. So uh, coming back to Ethiopia now, you mentioned Biden had made some remarks about it, but I would get I would say that people in Australia know what Biden said about it far better than Americans know what Biden might have said about it. And the fact that uh, in order to really sell a war uh, to the American people, more military involvement with anything, it would take at this point a real salesman and they'd really have to get behind it. So politically, I think the chances of U.S. getting involved in something over there are really small. Are they in Ethiopia aware of that political climate here that uh, that the U.S. is probably not going to get involved? We're going to sit on the sidelines for this. Very much so. Um, you know, everyone, anyone who works in foreign policy at the moment knows that uh, the midterms are looking particularly bleak for the Democrats. Right. Uh, and Biden will not want to go in because... We, even, we we saw with the Afghanistan pullout that, you know, a couple of people, uh, well, six Americans died. And it wasn't the Taliban who did that. It was ISIS-K. But even with those six Americans died, it was the entire, that was what the entire narrative of the pullout was. 
Right. Uh, and if you know the Americans go in and effectively try and even just put their group, this the guys between the grinds and the Romos, you know, if two Americans die, that will be the news story. It will be the next Benghazi that the Republicans will run straight into the midterms. Right. Um, so foreign involvement will not be on anyone's list at the moment. Gotcha. You know, they may be willing to put you know, private militaries in, that's a whole different thing. They may be willing to provide air support because we don't tend to have soldiers die when you provide air support, particularly when it's drones. Um, but I don't see Biden, you know, he's he's much more foreign policy driven than I'd say even, you know, uh, than any president has been since probably Bush Sr. Right. Um, just because that, that was his thing. It's actually one of the main, one of the main reasons uh, Barack Obama took him on as a VP because his background is foreign policy. Um but he he knows that it will give so much ammunition to the Republicans and a few of these really important state legislatures uh, that if he goes into Ethiopia and a few Americans die, that's going to make an already painful midterms even worse. But Biden doesn't seem to me coming full circle all the way back to the U.S. because it always is self-centric and and we can't and like if Australia is looking at America, America looks at itself as like way too self-important. But uh, coming back to America a little bit, I don't think Biden, as he's gotten older, I think he's, he's lost his understanding or his political savvy. He doesn't really understand that, at least from my perspective and, and how it looks to me, he doesn't understand about perceptions. And so this idea of running as some kind of shadow operation that he doesn't really want to tell the American people about, I think that would politically be worse for him than trying to sell an outright war, like to try to have some kind of military, covert military action. That, we'll keep this out of the news, just supply some arms or some advisors mm -hmm. or that kind of stuff. I think that would be even worse than trying to come out and say, we need to get involved <laughs> I, uh, on some level. I just don't think he gets that anymore he, i think he's so wrapped up in his and you know you you, you bring up that he, his background was foreign policy but right now he's so wrapped up on this uh, domestic agenda mm. and pushing that through that he's not looking even at what people care about and what people care about most in this country really are gas prices <laughs> and, and and bread on the shelves in which in, is funny because none of that is biden's fault that's that's a worldwide right, thing gas prices course, here are also high um, it's actually, you know, it's a really interesting position that Biden's in. I, I agree. He's not as sharp as he was. Um, but the thing with presidents is they're not meant to be the end decision maker. Right. You know, when effectively you work in high level governments, or you brief high level governments, like even when, you know, I work for a Central Asia think tank, you know, and we'll have a bunch of people sitting around a room and there will be a bunch of eggheads who have just read about Turkmenistan for 18 years of their life. And they will effectively have 20 people who will go, yep, okay, we think that this is how we should do Turkmenistan, which will then go up to four other people who will be not only a political advisor who will say, well, we shouldn't talk about Turkmenistan. Uh, another guy who will be an Air Force general will go, well, sir, this may, uh, this may affect our bases in uh, Qatar if we get too involved in Turkmenistan. Uh, and then there'll be two other guys. And then once they've decided, then it goes to the president. You know, Biden's not yeah. looking over every document going, well, I wonder no, what we should do. I He's getting... This. <laughs> a final briefing and going, is that what you think we should do? Okay, sweet. No problem. Let's do that. No, yeah, I'm very well aware of that. But although when I said most Americans are not really educated. Oh, yeah. There's no there's no votes in Ethiopia. Like, again, yeah. the, as, as, as you said, the things Americans care about are gas prices, which right. they've just released a very large stockpile of fuel from the strategic reserve, which 
is a band-aid issue but you know it's it's all right it's a it's a you know very temporary reprieve no Um, i i understand that no president really has the power to deal with uh things like inflation that but i mean some tiny little bit of things you can do but the idea politically to let people think that that's something you're not caring about. Like he's mm. ignored that and not kind of come out and kind of said to the American people, I hear you. We do have some kind of plan, any kind of addressing that kind of stuff. He said, like, I want to get infrastructure and build back better and all that kind of stuff. And, and no, and people are thinking, well, he's aloof. He's not hearing that what our real concerns are, which is gas prices, which is, yeah. uh, you know, like it's the end of the world gas prices, uh, the Thanks. trouble is he's he's stuck in a rock and hard place, and his advisors will be reading Jimmy Carter speeches to him at the moment. Because remember, you would have you know you, you're probably too young to remember Jimmy Carter, but no, I, um, <laughs> I know him very well. I, I, but I, you were, you'd have, you would remembered him saying, you know, "Wear a jumper inside the fuel you know fuel shortages," and the fuel shortages were almost nothing to do with Carter. Right. They were very very you know, that was more to do with OPEC and wider geopolitical economic trends. Right, but. Because he came out and said, you know, hey, we need to be more economically efficient. He got destroyed in the midterms um, that came, right. you know, in the middle of his, his presidency. And then Reagan smashed him. Uh, Biden knows that if he says anything about fuel prices, if he says, yes, they're too high, uh, I'm going to fix it. Then everyone's going to go, well, you didn't fix it because he can't. The whole right. problem with fuel prices at the moment is effectively fuel and gas companies effectively does pick how much fuel they're going to make about a year in advance. Um, that's how many guys they hire. That's how many plants they put on operation. You know, this is a very big macroeconomic trend. Right. Uh, and obviously most of the big fuel companies, particularly guys, you know, the Russians and the Saudis and a few of these, you know, American guys didn't think we'd pull out of the pandemic this well. So they've ordered, they've not bought enough fuel online. They're only right. making this many barrels thinking, well, the demand's going to be here. Because remember, if they make too much, they end up with the problem they had in April last year where they had all this fuel that the price went to zero. Right. Because fuel expires. As much as we think fuel is you know, a, a thing that sits in your tank, it actually goes off in mass storage. So you only make enough that you think you can sell. So that's why in April 2020, the price went to zero. And remember, we were all paying like nothing for gas because there was this much fuel available and this much demand. And they went, well, we think, you know, all these fuel companies would have gone, well, we think there's going to be this much demand in 2021 because the pandemic is not going to pan out that well. But what actually happened is Americans, because they weren't going on holiday, they weren't going, and this is for most of the Western world, uh, yeah. they weren't, you know, spending on, on you know, a lot of odd things. They upgraded cars. They bought bigger cars. They went driving a lot more. And what's happened is the actual, you know, they went, here's where we think the fuel demand is going to be. Right. And the demand was actually here. So they've actually not produced enough fuel to meet that demand. And this was a decision made in like August last year. Right. I get uh, so it. As it. And that's the thing. I understand that, but I fully understand that's the thing that Americans will take to the polls. Uh, yeah. And, and again, most of them are just being told that the gas prices are all, and and yeah, the people that are feeding them that all, all day long. I mean, Biden's again, fault that you, the gas you, prices are high. Even I had, like, you know, my degrees in economics, and even I had to look in, you know, when fuel prices go up like this, I go, okay, well, what's the reason for this? And right. if, again, I don't expect everyone's going to go get a degree in economics. Then, no, but you just get, give a very piece of important uh, education there in the fact that most of us, and I know I, until you just said it two minutes ago, 
I was uh, unaware that gas and, and fuel can go bad and spoil in, in some way. So when I think of the strategic uh, reserve that America has, that's got to be constantly maintained, re, re, refreshed, sort of, right? Yeah. Uh, so effectively, the, the, the U.S. with their stockpiles will buy in, let's say, you know, let's call it a million barrels. Uh, and then they'll keep that barrels there and then they'll sell it back into the consumer market after a couple of weeks and they'll refill it with another million barrels wow. and keep that going. Uh, because fuel does go off, you know. It's, sometimes it can last a bit longer when it sits in barrels. It can last, you know, almost up to a year. But when it's in mass, you know, big, big, big tanks, then it starts to go off a lot quicker. Which is why we saw, you know, even when the height of the pandemic came in, uh, in sort of April, May last year, these fuel companies were paying people to take fuel because they were just like, we don't have anywhere to store this. And remember that it's all coming out, and there's, you know the way we've done our fuel supply chains is effectively to make sure that once it comes out and once it gets out of the refineries, it gets into the barrels and gets into the cars. We don't want to have a gazillion tons of this stuff sitting around. We want it to get in the barrel, get in the car, get in the barrel, get in the car. But if there's no one buying the barrel, then the barrel overfills. And if there's not enough going in the barrel, then the cars still demand. So it's a long supply chain that if it isn't calculated right, we end up in the exact problem we're in now and the exact problem we were in in April last year. All right. I want to be respectful of your time here. I told you 40 minutes. We've already gone past 40 minutes. But I <laughs> uh, just want back to Ethiopia for a final mm -hmm. thought here. Uh, in your projections, crystal ball, what kind of timeline we're looking at uh, before we know which way this thing's going to break? <laughs> I'd say the next two to three weeks, we'll know if there will be a peaceful solution. Um, there is talks at the moment between both parties to see if they can't solve something. Uh, I'd say within, if there isn't, you know, if the peace talks don't go well, I would be watching pretty closely to see if, if uh, Arby has a coup uh, because a lot of people will go, well, if Arby's the problem, let's just get rid of him and maybe the Tigrayans will take pity on whoever comes next. Uh, and if that doesn't happen, then we start watching for logistical piles up. So, you know, it'll be things like, you know, on the ground where you'll start to see troops get lots of fresh ammunition. You'll start to see lots more fuel getting chucked in. You'll see start to see lots more planes being flown in probably from the Russians and the Turks um, and the Egyptians will probably get involved as well. So that's where we're at is now let's see if peace happens in the next couple of weeks, if they can get a peace deal. If they can't, let's see if a coup will happen. If the coup won't happen, then we're watching for whether they either make a dash for the for, and shut off the roads to Djibouti. Uh, and if they shut the roads to Djibouti, then the Ethiopians know they're on their own. There'll likely be another round of peace talks and there'll be another round of negotiations uh, and then possibly another coup now the ethiopians know they're on their own and if that doesn't work then we go for the final battle and it's horrifyingly bloody and messy and you know there will be quite a lot of people dying okay unfortunately you you're going oh, to bum well, everyone out at 8 a.m in the morning <laughs> yeah no and it's i think it will probably going to get just a little bit uh, uh more bummed out with the final question here uh and it is basically this you already kind of um pointed out what a crucial stabilizing uh, presence Ethiopia is in the North African part and to some extent in the world. On a scale of 1 to 10, how how much anxiety should we be filled with in as far as uh, what this means to the, the entire world as far as that, that area, if something, if a coup happens and what Oh, six, what is six, the, what's six the level of anxiety we should have on that? Six to eight, six, wow. six to, eight to nine. It, it's you, you got to realize that the majority of the <laughs> uh, the majority of the world's stuff comes from East Asia, and it goes through the Suez Canal. 
Right. And if it goes through the Suez Canal, it has to go through the Babel Amanda Strait, which is only about 10 Ks across. Um, and if it has to go through that, now if you have that entire Somalia and the Babel Amanda and, and Sudan, all these areas as a terrorist hotspot, the first thing they're going to do is start attacking Western ships coming through that really, really narrow channel. Right. Because it's so narrow, you know, it's not difficult for even, you know, you can almost get it, you can almost hit them with shoulder mounted cannons, which is terrifying. But then you think, oh, well, one ship, that's not a problem. But the moment one ship goes down, the insurance on all of the ships going through that area will go through the roof. Oh, my God. You know, because companies are going to want the insurance, want to get insured against attacks. And then from there, well, you know, every, the price of everything goes up. Right. And again, if these areas become lawless, so we're looking back to Somalia here, um, what that means is that terrorists have somewhere to congregate and build up and they can actually form a, a you know, actually build networks. You know, when we saw with the, you know, the, the, when ISIS took over a caliphate, it was, you know, the, what the area they took wasn't particularly dangerous. They're not going to jump to the US from there, but it invigorated a lot of terrorist units. It got a lot of them to jump on board and it also gave people a, somewhere to, if you're a disaffected youth in Pakistan or a disaffected youth in Chad, you had somewhere to go, train, and then head back to your home countries. Right. So it, allowing these lawless areas, in particularly Somalia and uh, Central African Republic and, and Sudan to form, uh, is a recipe for, for trouble. Uh, and this is the problem we're now facing. Well, now, now I'm very nervous. I was nervous beforehand, <laughs> but this is, I, I think it's important for people here to kind of, as, as many people as we can reach to kind of let them understand this kind of stuff and un help them uh, understand what the, what the impact to the entire world is. So I thank you for, for this red line podcast. When, uh, what are you doing? When's it coming out? You know, you, when so we have a we have a new episode every fortnight, uh, focusing on one big issue shaping the news. Uh, so the last one we did was on the U.S. Baltic defense strategy. So if Russia was to invade the you know, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, what right. should the U.S. response be? Uh, and the next one's on on Sri Lanka, who's currently going through a bit of an economic crisis. Uh, and then we're talking about Bosnia, who's currently going through some uh, ethnic tensions that are a repeat of 1990s. So right, but right. Trump uh, sending his envoy there, isn't he? <laughs> oh no that was serbia i think or croatia serbia croatia i get them all mixed up sometimes but, um. <laughs> so you've just upset the entire balkans now um. <laughs> <laughs> um but but uh yeah so but i mean with with uh, didn't you have a, an episode uh coming up that was going to be dedicated to we do we do have one coming up coming up on sudan we're out watching it very closely so obviously we're working working with a few people and, and making sure that we get it out on time uh, and make sure we get it out that it's comprehensive. Because obviously the trouble is that if we put it out right now, it right. might be out of date in two days when yeah, we wind up with the peace, your, what happens this, with the peace talks. So this is a, your, your challenge with everything because you're on top <laughs> of breaking news, but by the time, like with that China thing, by the time mm. you were done here in the morning, it was already breaking <laughs> a prediction that you would, you had made uh, very interesting stuff. Well, I wish you great success. So people are just going to look for the red line podcast. Just look for the, the red line. Uh, you were on all the major platforms and, uh, Spotify, Apple, you know, uh, Garner, all the major podcast platforms, as well as YouTube as well. Well, great. Thank you for your education on this. I hope we're, we're still alive uh, sometime <laughs> in the near future. We could have you back on the next uh, earth-shattering thing we need to be uh, full of anxiety about. Thank you so Always much. Always happy to come on and depress people at 8 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> thank, thank, have a good night over there. And a, you too. A, have a Merry Thanksgiving for tomorrow yeah, as well. Yeah, and, <laughs> and a beautiful summer to you, bastard. <laughs> All right, bye, bye for now.
Michael Hilliard, folks, Redline Podcast. Check it out. Uh, independent journalism. Independent journalists are for independent thinkers who don't need their thoughts uh, spoon-fed to them by uh, traditional mainstream media. Uh, so I'd love to hear your thoughts about that when I come back. I'm going to play my sponsor bit here uh, a little bit. Hold on. What am I doing? Technically challenged because the coffee hasn't really kicked in here, folks. And uh, that for a second. Uh, man, one of these days I'm going to be fully awake at 8 a.m. and shock everybody. Um, but that day obviously is not today. So uh, just bear with me one moment while we click the button that says, yes, that's the one. I'll be back with you. This episode is brought to you by Truefire. Do you want to learn guitar or improve your playing? Are you stuck in a rut and unable to take your playing to the next level? Truefire has your solution. Over 2 million guitar players worldwide learn, practice, and play with Truefire. Our learning tools and massive library of video lessons will ignite your technical skills, harmonic knowledge, rhythm playing, and soloing chops. Truefire's educators are the best in the biz, from Grammy Award winners to world-renowned artists. You'll have access to an unparalleled faculty of over 300 top-notch blues, rock, jazz, country, fingerstyle, and acoustic guitar educators. Using our desktop and mobile apps, you'll work with Truefire's multi-angle video lessons on any device, anytime, anywhere. Integrated learning tools such as video synced tab and notation, slow-mo, looping, practice jam tracks, and many more handy controls accelerate your learning experience. Truefire's style-specific learning paths guide you every step of the way. Use our assessment tools to find your starting point, then follow our lesson recommendations and track your progress as you work through your personalized Truefire study plan. Progress faster with private one-on-one -on -one instruction, group lessons, multi-track video jams, live streams, song lessons, student forums, Truefire's Riff magazine, premium jam tracks, and much, much more. With thousands of five-star ratings and reviews from amateur and pro players alike, you'll find yourself in good company with the world's most comprehensive guitar learning platform. Grab your guitar and ignite your musicality. Sign up free for an all-access trial today. All right, show me that girl with the link coffee. in the description to find out more. Watch, you're going to spill. Watch, you think she's spilled. Look, let's go. Oh! Get out of here. <laughs> True Fire, folks. Uh, if you want to learn how to play guitar fast or any instrument, they have keyboard instruments, uh, keyboard lessons and instructions and drum stuff and singing stuff. True Fire. Link is in the description. 
Uh, you can, whether you're a beginner or an intermediate or even advanced player, somebody who's been playing 57 years, I'm still studying with True Fire. Uh, that's what you look like when you drink coffee, that blonde? Wow, Carl, I didn't know you were so hot. Good morning, Carl. Good afternoon, whatever it is over there. It's afternoon, I'm sure. It's a, it's what? like two o'clock one o'clock in the afternoon something over there what yeah yeah yeah, whatever i can't do math don't make me do math right now i can't even tell what time it is here anyway that michael hilliard man impressive dude huh uh are you as impressed as i am i i would hope you are now uh we we tend to focus and here's the thing uh, I thought I knew a little bit about Ethiopia from the guests I've had on who are Ethiopians. Uh, Michael tells a, a far different or paints a far different picture than both those guys did. And I trust that, ironically, uh, Michael's picture is a lot clearer uh, than the guess i had on now deacon dewitt who was on a couple of weeks ago seemed to paint it more in terms of a racial thing uh it's all about white colonialism didn't sound like michael said that at all uh this is more about power of two internal groups tribal groups uh and majority versus the rebels who were in the minority i knew uh, the leadership was Marxist there for a long time. I don't know if we're talking about like real co- a communist state like the old Soviet Union or Cuba or just people that have uh, Marxist ideals. I know it is a dictatorship, basically. I mean, even though it's not a, a freely elected government, put it that way. But it does have uh, crucial importance to the rest of the world. You know, that whole, uh, you, the bleak picture he explained at the end there. Doesn't, uh, and it's true. I mean, we, we tend to think of Northeast Africa as, so what? I mean, uh, who, who who goes there? Well, Chad gets his coffee beans from there. <laughs> but it's more than that. The Suez Canal, as he mentioned, uh, supply chains, all that kind of stuff. You think we got oil prices and supply chain problems now? Wait till the stabilizing force in North Africa blows up. It's not a, a pleasant thought, folks. Um, so that was that this morning. Love to hear your thoughts on that and, uh, and, and see if... Uh, uh, you have any different ideas or optimistic or full of anxiety like I am. Good morning, Craig Johnson. See you. First bit of rain in 54 days in ABQ. Uh, thanks. You know, when I first went to uh, New Mexico, I was sold on the fact. I think it was a brochure that got me to go there. I was in Florida, finishing up high school in Florida. And there was a brochure that uh, claimed that New Mexico uh had no rain or, or what did they, what they say? Uh, I think it said less than an inch of rain per year in the entire state. And to me, that sounded glorious. Uh, they didn't mention that it got cold there. I am from being from the Northeast. You think about the Southwest, you think it's always sunny and warm there, even in the winter. And they didn't mention that winters actually do get cold there. And, uh, and really uh, snow and all that stuff. The stuff we think we're getting away from happens down there. Uh, But rain in November, a little 54 days without rain. 
Uh, I don't think we go 54 minutes without Rainer. <laughs> nah. Uh, yeah, that was a thank you for that. It was a great conversation. I, uh, you know, it always is with Michael. He knows his shit. He's a really impressive guy. But uh, there are other people like him out there, and I think this is the problem with America. Is you know, part of that the big takeaway from that conversation is how much other people around the world, and Carl could probably attest to this, being uh, not here, over there, that way. Yeah, I think it's pretty much that way. That's where Carl is over there. Uh, just uh, uh, but uh, understanding how people outside of the U.S. have a better understanding of what's going on in the U.S. than Americans do. A lot of Americans, I should say, the the Americans who live on Twitter, uh, not the news part of Twitter, but the pundits, pundits who just keep talking about what other pundits have said about politics, sharing that information in the worst possible way. It's like one big fucking game of telephone uh, where a comedian will say something about a news piece that he saw, and then people will spread that around as if it's gospel fact truth. We get a lot of that here in America. Uh, Craig says they get about 13 inches of rain a year. That's just 13 times as much as they sold me on those Friggin', uh, I think maybe I wasn't talking about Albuquerque. I think I was talking about the brochure I I read was about the entire state, but that's that's far more, uh, far more than I thought about. 33 centimeters for Call the Man, eh? Call you are uh, you're big on the metric system over there. Let me t- do you understand inches? Yes, yeah, I understand inches. <laughs> he said that right away. Yeah, I thought I thought you did because uh, with last time you were here, you were talking about I don't know, you're saying something about nine inches or something, and I told you I was busy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's good to have you here, Carl. Thank you for for being. I should open the phone lines in case anybody should want to call. I'm not saying you have to call. I'm just saying I'm opening the phone lines in case anybody should want to call. <clears throat> you hear the allergies kicking in a little bit. It's the heat. I figured out uh, my morning allergies are due to putting on the dry heat in the morning. Uh, anyway, uh, great to have you all here. Uh, <laughs> Ken Harris, good to see you here. Uh, Ken, you know, I was thinking about you last night because you were talking about that uh, Scrivener thing, which has a template for screenplay and i had uh first of all i got a couple of independent filmmakers who are looking for content who will be coming on in the next couple of weeks they contacted me yesterday uh guy's got a independent film production company he's uh, seeking pictures right now i will share that information with you but there is uh, i think that final draft stuff uh the application that i have I'm pretty sure if you have an electronic version of your book, basically it's just a matter of uh, feeding that into the program. It automatically uh, puts out a it puts it out in screenplay format with scene direction and all that stuff, and notes about how to tweak it to you know do little tweaks here to to make it just the way you want it but it's a much simpler thing than actually having to go through using a template and typing out i think it's called final draft i will get that information for you it's on another computer 
Uh, I downloaded. I used it a couple of years ago when I was working on a screenplay. I think it's called Final Draft. Uh, but I will definitely find out what it what I did use for that and get that information for you because uh, maybe maybe we can see about uh, pushing your uh, book as a screenplay to some of these independent filmmakers who want to uh, use my platform for whatever they use it for, for whatever reach that gives them, uh, we'll be happily uh, happy to be a conduit for that kind of stuff. I like to, I, that's what we're all about here, man. That's is why I'm doing this stuff to kind of uh, be a love connection for people in the, in the creative arts, you know, I'm like Chuck Woolery without the uh, far right ex- extremism views, and the will be back in two and two, and without the hair, which goes without saying. Uh, it is Wednesday before Thanksgiving here in the United States of America, and tomorrow we will be giving thanks together, uh, which basically means eating a lot of food. Uh, What's uh, oh? What's $159 Black Black Friday sale? Fi- fi- final draft? Is that it? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I know I, whatever I got was free. <laughs> uh, I might have a a something that is is similar to Final Draft. Does all the same things that Final Draft does, but goes by another name. I will find out. I have to open up that other computer, which will be a whole friggin'. I'm not doing it today, but I will definitely do it. Uh, probably this weekend and get you that information for it. But as I mentioned, tomorrow we're going to be overeating and uh, giving thanks for trivial shit. Uh, most people don't uh, don't really put a lot of thought into Thanksgiving, what we have to be thankful for. And I asked this question on Facebook, and I know I, I started a bit of a, you know, how it goes. You can just say hello and people will start fucking arguing. And so I asked a question about atheists. What, who, <laughs> atheists, who are you giving thanks to? And, you know, exactly how does that work? Uh, Thanksgiving, do you celebrate Thanksgiving? And who the fuck are you thanking? Uh, and I don't know. I don't know how that works. I really don't because it really was meant to be, even though we're supposed to, you know, separation of church and state and all that kind of stuff thanksgiving was meant to be somewhat of a theist holiday you have and that's a tough call man it's hard it's i don't know where people fall on that stuff but i i think i've made it pretty clear that i'd love to have faith i'd love to be a person of faith it's just as a person who comes from a scientific background very difficult very difficult and i can't accept any of the stuff that religion sells as uh, the way it is the fairy tale uh the book about the old man in the sky and all that kind of stuff just so who do you who are we really giving thanks to well i'm just thankful to be alive uh but who am i saying thanks to it may i question that if you're not a hardcore theist I'm not. I'd love to be. I'd love to be. I'd love to be, be a believer. Cause I'd love to have the the faith and conviction and bliss that comes with knowing. Because I don't know. 
your thoughts on that tomorrow? Giving thanks. What are you get? What are we thankful for? I'm thankful for all you people. I know that. I, I appreciate every single one of you. So I want to say thank you directly to you. And I'm not thanking any greater uh, being for any any of your presence. Just thanking you all for being here and being supportive of this and, and uh, keeping me company uh, while while I try to find a way to connect with people out there. Appreciate every one of you. So I want to say thank you to you. But I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this whole Thanksgiving holiday, what it means to you. I know Carl doesn't celebrate over there. Uh, and I, I wonder what, Carl, if you want to chime in on this, what other people, what people who are not in the United States, what their perception of uh, the holiday is uh, and, and what it really means to people who, who do you laugh at us and say, look at those dummies, what are they giving thanks for? <laughs> We do have uh, some things to be thankful for here. Now, what? Well, first of all, uh, and, and, and this can't be overstated, uh, we kind of touched on it just a tiny bit in that conversation with Michael, that Afghanistan, we're, we're done over there. And we did, and I know, it, you know, pulling out was uh, painful. Of course it was. But after 20 years of spending, I think the number, and don't quote me on this because I might be an idiot here, but I think I read the number was we were spending three hundred over $300 million a day. That's a staggering number. We're not doing that anymore. We're not losing lives, American lives, over in Afghanistan anymore. Let's be thankful for that. We can be thankful as a country for that. Uh, what is Carl saying here about uh, just for movies and a few friends, not at all, food-based holidays are great. <laughs> See, it shouldn't be about the food, though. I mean, it. I guess maybe it should be about the food. I mean, we should be thankful that we have food, and, and but we're, we'll take it for granted just as much as we say we're being thankful for it. On uh, We overeat, we, we overdo everything, and then there's so much waste that goes with this stuff. For years and years, I volunteered in a, a homeless uh, shelter f- serving uh, food on Thanksgiving. Uh, I did it for probably about 15 years, every Thanksgiving. Started the morning by cooking uh holiday dinner, and by noon, you know, or we'd serve dinner probably at noon or 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, but even in the homeless shelters, so much went to waste. And I became, by the end, I was like, just by the end of my service doing that, because uh, there's no places around. I would still be doing it, but there's no places around here that I know of uh, within 30 miles from where I live right now that I could actually go do that. And uh, let's face it, I lost a, a little bit of the energy to be driving for all that stuff. But it just occurred to me the amount of waste, even in a homeless shelter on Thanksgiving. So it's supposed to be about Thanksgiving and you make it all about all this food and stuff. And then we end up throwing so much of it away. Wasteful stuff. Now, how what the irony of being thankful while just wasting stuff and taking shit for granted. It doesn't fall on anybody's radar as far as the irony of all that kind of stuff uh so what is carl saying about 142 billion super bowl is that serious is that a real number no you're lying to me 142 
billion wings. No, come on. Tell me that that's a joke and you're just fooling me. You're pulling my leg. Uh, Craig says, I'm thankful for calling Jamie, keeping my ancestors' homeland safe. For, for... <laughs> I don't think they are. I think if it came down to an invasion, Jamie Dykes and Carl would be doing a podcast drinking a, a beer and talking about Epstein, laughing it off as it happened. But I'm not. that's not to disparage Carl and Jamie at all. I love them, but I don't think uh, they're, they're, they're saving whales from uh, anybody taking it over. Anyway, uh, what do you mean? What do you mean by that, Ken Harris? I, you, you, I know you were sent here by the FBI to infiltrate this program. I know it. I know it. They're trying to get me to, to be say something seditious so you could lock me up. I know you. You think I don't know what you're up to. <laughs> anyway, good morning, folks. Uh, I'm having some coffee now because that's what I do in the morning. Now, immediately after this program uh, wraps up, by the way, you can go to patreon.com, TV if you want to uh, be uh, supportive. In any way, for at just the one dollar a month level, uh, you will get links to join this program and be part of uh, the conversation online if you so inclined to do that. But more importantly, uh, you will be taking a dollar that you could be using a dollar a month that you could be using to feed a starving person in, let's say, Ethiopia, and taking food out of their mouth just to give it to me. That's what you will be doing. And so I support that effort completely. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, all the money will be put to good use. All the 30 cents uh, that we make from, from that stuff uh, uh, that ends up being profit goes to back into the the uh, the world. Now, that song I've been working on for a couple of weeks now that I'm putting out, that is... Uh, I'm, Releasing that with a, uh, and don't expect to make a lot of money for for charities, but all proceeds will go to uh, the uh, addiction recovery. Um, what it, don't really, don't know the full name of the charity, but it's a addiction national addiction hotline uh, for people who are dealing with uh, addictive situations, whether it be drugs, whether it be gambling, whether it be uh pornography whatever you get addicted to there's a lot of stuff people get addicted to but putting everything back to a good cause giving back trying to give back a little bit good morning jake jolly good to see you uh popping in what's going on with the website buddy we last last i spoke to you we were going to be doing a website for you and that was about a week and a half ago and i haven't heard back from you you don't have to answer now i'm just kind of curious and when i saw your name pop up there first thing i thought oh jake we should be doing a website for you jake if you don't know folks uh has a film out called clay zombies very funny film oh no um it's uh a a claymation zombie film and uh i think you should check it out it's very funny very well made a uh, very uh, high production value for a guy who's uh, not got a major studio backing. It's completely end- independent thing. And Jake has uh, filled the roles of writer, producer, star of the movie, or one of the stars of the movie, I should say. He's, he's uh, part of the cast, uh, an ensemble cast. Um, uh, he's a production assistant, 
Uh, I think he's probably been cameraman when he had to, editor, um, director, <laughs> photography, whatever. Many, many different hats and the executive producer and, and also the marketing director. All that while maintaining uh, his self and his wife's existence by working a regular uh, job. So congratulations to him for even being able to complete the project, but complete it in such a professional and impressive way my hat as as it is is off to jake and great job done and i hope you check it out claymation zombies right now the best place uh look for clay clay uh clay zombies on facebook it's a place to go right now uh to find out information about it you can probably just go to my page and look in my friends list and find jake and get there or just look at jake danger jolly and you'll find out about the film. Uh, I think I think you'll thank me after you watch it. It's a very funny film. And uh, interesting in the claymation stuff. Now, somebody had, had mentioned, uh, somebody was looking for, to do some kind of uh, animation, uh, unique animation on Twitter yesterday. And I, I thought about Jake, and I, I did mention that, they should look him up because he's he's the guy when it comes to that kind of stuff. Claymation, not not an easy thing. It's not like actors where you just say, "Okay, action, go do <laughs> claymation, man." I, I how much work goes into that? I think it's stop. I, I'm not sure about the stop motion that you know, kind of get the clay and get it set, and then one little incremental move at a time. A lot of stuff. Anyway, my my world is not yet turned around uh, up till 4 o'clock in the morning. You would think getting up to do this, I get up at 7 a.m. to do to start at a.m., 8 a.m. here. You would think by now my cycle would start to get ter- turned around so I could sleep at night and be awake in the morning. But no, I'm still furiously working at night on music stuff and the book and all this stuff. So I was up till three o'clock in the morning, gave myself a major crying headache working on, because I have the video ready for this uh, song, even before I'm done mixing it. I completed the video for it last night. Now I'm just waiting for the final mix just to plug it in, kind of put it out there. But I have played it for uh, several people, and it's it's kind of a tearjerker. It really is. And I, I didn't mean to kind of fucking tugging hard strings and all that kind of stuff uh but uh just at at some point last night i was just like why am i doing this to myself torturing myself over over a an issue like this driven to it just driven to kind of finish this project up and so at some point i you know after that happened and i had the splitting headache stuff i went on to work on uh other music stuff that i have going on and so Really prolific time for me. Very creative time. What do we got going on in the chat room that I'm missing over here? Uh, yeah, uh, the uh, there is a listing in the IMD uh, movie base for Claymation Zombies. Uh, Clay, Clay Zombies. I'm sorry. I'm not talking very well. Clay, Jake Jolly, do you see this message from Ken saying hello to you? Get on it, guys. I, I love seeing people work together, creating some synergy between the creative people in the community. Please do 
continue to support each other. Nothing would make me happier than to see people who met and somehow connected to this show doing things to support each other. Great stuff. Link to each other. Do whatever you can to support each other. By the way, might as well give Ken a plug here while we're, while we're giving the plugs out. Ken is the author of uh, The Pine Barren Stratagem. Yeah, it's uh, from the cases of Steve Rockfish. Now, we have talked about this book, and it's not out yet in paperback form, but you can pre-order it now. Uh, it's available on audio. You can get it on Audible. Get it on Audible today and listen to it. Great book, and it's uh, reminiscent. I, I, I'm always at it struggling to have how I describe this. Reminiscent, I don't, I've been saying based on. Uh, it carries a lot of the flavor and um, spirit of television, mystery dramas. What do they call it? Mystery television theater, something. Oh, what the hell do they call it? On NBC, they used to have a rotating thing with the Rockford, Rockford Files, Columbo, Banachek, McMillan and Wife. There was probably one or one or two other. Oh, McLeod, I think. Dennis Weaver. Do you remember McLeod? A New Mexico guy. Uh, <laughs> for for our buddy Craig out there, I think uh, McLeod was. If I have this straight, Dennis Weaver was supposedly a sheriff from some not if not definitely not Albuquerque, some place in New Mexico though, who uh, took a job as a police captain uh, in New York City, <laughs> uh, and one of the episodes. I, I remember very clearly, oh, yeah, uh, Ken's book comes out January 27th of 2022, the paperback edition. But as I mentioned, Audible, you can get it today. Anyway, the book is very reminiscent of the Rockford Files, uh, particularly, but based on or or reminiscent of and touches on all those kind of, that whole genre of uh as Ken shared yesterday, he watched a lot of TV in the 80s. <laughs> anyway, how do I pull the book down and get back over here? There we go. Uh, so you can look for Pine Barren Stratagem. Uh, look for it on uh, Audible today. Or you can pre-order it on Amazon or wherever you buy your damn books. Just put in uh, Pine Barren Stratagem and look it up and do the pre-order. That's how you do it, folks. Now, back. let me see what's happening back over in the chat room there. Anything worth the... Uh, Oh, yeah, he was from Taos. Uh, House was from Taos. I'm uh, House McLeod was from Taos. One of the episodes I remember clearly of the McLeod stuff was this idea that Butch, Butch Cassidy was back as an old man riding a stagecoach through downtown Manhattan. Uh, which, yeah, I, if you, people who know me know I am a huge fan of all the uh, Western Outlaws, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid it, it's particularly uh, held my uh, interest uh, for many years about this whole idea that they might have escaped and just uh, really just in love with that era in, of uh, good guys, bad guys, guys who were all-time train robbers and bank robbers and stuff, but heroes in some way to, like, you know, you the American Robin Hood, 
Butch Cassidy was definitely seen as that, but because the railroads and all those people, uh, to the to the common people who lived out out west at those times, and you know, a lot of those uh, big bankers and railroad people were were not were the enemy. So Butch Cassidy was, you know, basically seen as like a Robin Hood figure in that era, and so that stuff is kind of romantic to me. I love that stuff. Uh, good morning, Kelly. Nice to see you show up uh, here. Wow, we have a uh, a lot of people in the in the chat room here now, running around like a crazy lady. Thanks for the tweet, Craig. Made me feel special. Wow, oh, Craig's tweeting. Craig is a uh, guy who makes everybody feel special and everybody feel like they're uh, a superstar. What a uh, what a great and thank you, Craig. Tomorrow, I promise you, uh, as we give thanks here. Uh, Craig Johnson will be one of the things that I am thankful for. I'm thankful for uh, meeting you, thankful for getting to know you, uh, and uh, really, really, really uh, just appreciate you very much. Now, what are you saying about uh, Hella High Water filmed in eastern New Mexico, like like where Dora, like not Portales? <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering uh, where in eastern, you know, there was, we used to go for, on Friday nights, we used to go to Lubbock. We used to hitchhike to Lubbock from Portales, New Mexico, because you could drink. When I went out uh, to New Mexico originally in late 1976, uh, Roosevelt County was still a dry county. Prohibition still on in that county. Anyway, you could not buy alcohol there. Uh, I think it changed while I was there. Tucumcari, beautiful place. Uh, Clovis, we mentioned yesterday or a couple of days ago, love Clovis. Nice little city. Very quaint little town. The Air Force Base out there, Cannon Air Force Base. Uh, very cool little little place. And it feels like, at least it did to me last time I was there. Last time I was there in Clovis was in 1997, I think. Uh, and in that area, 1997. So it's been a while, but it it felt then, and it's still did looking at the pictures that Davy sent from last summer. Uh, feels like you're getting in a time machine back to the 1940s in some ways. Uh, it just feels far removed from the America that I know. Even and I'm in a rural part of New York State, but it, we just feel like a, a different time. Uh, Oh, Ken, you know that movie, Hell or High Water. I guess I have to figure it out, find it. Who's in it? Who's the star of it? Uh, tell me more about it. No one. Uh... <laughs> anyway, where was I? What was I talking about? I'm having too many senior moments here. I'm back on the political stuff for a, for a second, based on that conversation with Michael. We were talking about we were talking about Ethiopia, but when it came back to the United States and he mentioned Biden's rhetoric about uh, what's going on over there, I would venture to say that most of us in America don't even know that Biden said anything about Ethiopia. But uh, coming back to the idea about gas prices and, and supply chain, uh, and Michael doesn't have, you know, he's not a Republican, not a Democrat, he's not an American. <laughs> he doesn't care about American uh alliances or political teams uh, and he said you know none of that stuff 
gas prices, inflation, all that stuff. Is uh, the president's fault or necessarily within his power to do anything about? Now, I agree with that, by the way. There's very little Michael would say that I would disagree with because I think he just is smarter than me, more uh, in tune with these things than I am. Politics, economics, all that stuff. I agree that there's not much that a president can do, but I kind of had this argument with the Biden supporters who are now very much like Trump supporters. Uh, If you criticize the president, they're going to defend him. Like, like he needs defending from any kind of criticism instead of saying, uh, instead of recognizing the validity of criticism and saying, you, they all are, were they work for us. You're allowed to criticize people who work for you and the job they're doing. But when I said about Biden's apparent, Michael agreed with me on this, apparent loss of political savvy as he's gotten older. And the fact that when it comes to gas prices and, and inflation, those are the two issues Americans care about more than anything. They don't care necessarily about an insurrection. They don't care about a kid on trial. They can't. Americans care about the kid on trial for, for shooting somebody. But that story will be out of a news cycle pretty quickly and people will have forgotten about it. What people care most about right now, American people care most about right now is gas prices and getting rid- getting back to normal past the, the era of COVID and making sure we're not uh, ha- having bread lines like the old Soviet Union. That's what people care about. And so a president might not be able to fix that problem but politically, he can't afford really to ignore it because if he ignores it, people think he's aloof and don't care about what the problem is. And your chances of uh, supporting your party and all that kind of stuff go right out the window if people think you don't give a shit about what they really care about. Not politically savvy at all. But so I faced a lot of back back. Lash on Twitter, I guess backlash is the right word. I don't know what the fuck is the right word anymore. <laughs> uh, on Twitter for saying that, you know, Biden can't afford to do nothing. He's got to at least give people the perception that he he hears them and wants to do something, even though he's powerless. And people are saying, well, I can't do anything. You can't do anything. You're crazy. I was like, well, you Democrats are becoming just the mirror image of what we had for the last four years, where if you say any mild criticism about the president, it's like I called your mother a whore. You know, and you're going to attack me now because I'm like saying bad stuff about Biden. I wouldn't even say bad stuff about him. I'm just saying he needs to kind of let people know he, he knows what the problems are. He hears them. He feels their pain. And all of a sudden, I'm like the enemy to these people. I said, do you realize that, you know, you spent four years talking about Trump and, and, and his supporters like like they treat him like an infantile, like he, he, anything you say, they feel a protection mechanism. And now you're doing the same thing with your guy. So fuck you, party people. Uh, anyway, uh, so then in the last couple of days, Biden's... no. Uh, claiming that his um, Build Back Better uh, plan, its economic plan for America, does a lot to 
deal with inflation, long-term inflation. Well, you just told me, we were just arguing that the president is impotent, can't do anything about inflation. And so now they're all celebrating that Biden said something, he's going to do something about, that's all I wanted him to do. Just kind of let people know that he he's aware of it. Now, whether his plan is really going to help combat inflation, who the fuck knows? I'm no economist. I just, you know, my point was that he needs to kind of address it. People just, but the same people who were arguing with me that he's powerless to do anything now were celebrating the fact that he's powerful to do something about it. Fucking, and they, they spin in circles trying to fucking cheerlead for their teams. And then later on in the day, they were now back. He's talking about inflation and how we can do something about inflation, which they were arguing they couldn't do anything about. And they're celebrating that. Now, yay, what a great victory because he's going to do something that, about something you, you swore he couldn't do anything about. And then he uh, announced that he was going to release, I forget what the number, 50 billion barrels, 50 million barrels, a lot of oil from the strategic reserve. Not nearly a dent in what the strategic reserve, but he was going to do that to battle gas prices, to, to uh, bring gas prices down. And they were celebrating that. The same people will tell me he's powerless to do anything about gas prices, which that is exactly when they said, what would you suggest you do about uh, gas prices? I said, well, you could re- release some of the strategic reserve. We have like several trillion barrels of oil sitting there uh, for us to use in a situation like this. He could do that. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Fine. I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I would agree that I'm not an economic economist <laughs> major, uh, but and so he decides to do exactly what I suggested he do. And now they're celebrating like, wow, this was their idea. <laughs> like, wait a minute. You were just telling me he couldn't do this. You fucking lying, bullshit, cheerleading. Why don't you just put on a, a big cheerleader outfit with a big B on it? Biden, Biden, rah, 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 rah. Like, this is why I hate parties. You can't, you can't have a intelligent conversation or even a respectful conversation about issues when we just want to be cheerleaders for our teams. Now, Michael, talking about Australia, uh, what, what Kelly saying before I talk about going to the Australia, to be honest, I really thought I remembered Biden having a high approval rating when he was the VP. Remember the names of, uh, yeah, uh, well, VP? VPs don't really get approval ratings. I mean, I know they do, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, Kamala Harris is pretty low right now. Uh, Biden, it's a factor of the president that they serve. I mean, what is the vice president really doing? Do you know, uh, uh, I mean, what really policy, what policy does the vice president really impacting right now or ever Uh the approval of the vice president is always based on the the president. So Harris is, and not Ken Harris, Ken Harris' approval rating is uh, 100% right now. Uh, but Kamala Harris is probably about 28%. But that's a reflection of the boss. Not really, people don't know what the fuck she does. And she's been pretty, pretty invisible. As far as, uh, but Biden was very visible in the Obama years. By the way, here's an, an unfun fact. It's just a stupid piece of trivia. 
that means nothing. But Biden is the oldest living former vice president. <laughs> He's the oldest living former vice president. What does that mean? It means absolutely nothing. It's just, uh, to me, somehow interesting. Oh, yeah, what I was saying about uh, Australia, now getting back to what Michael was talking about. Uh, parliament there, I think one party had got 53 of the 56 seats in Australia. That to me, I would be worried about that. Even if I was uh, in the party that has power. As I've said a couple of times on this program, and I've said, you know, in conversation with just about everybody, two-party system sucks. It really does. I think we need more parties. But a one-party system is really bad. I mean, if you look at history, any place you've had one party in power, total power, doesn't go well. And so, you know, Australia might be handling this pandemic better than the U.S. is and certainly handling the temperature of this population a little better, even though the media is telling us they're riding like crazy to the point where Candace Owens wants to invade to keep the peace there. For, and I've talked to probably 20 Australians in the last two months who said, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, we've had some. You heard Michael. We had protests and rallies where five and six people showed up. I hardly think they need a United States invasion to keep those five or six people in line. <laughs> when I was... Uh, a young man, I proposed, uh, I went into a bar one night, uh, a local bar, and I proposed <laughs> that we all go to uh, JFK and get a, a flight to a small Caribbean country. Uh, I think it, I think I was talking about Grenada because that Grenada, we were discussing Grenada. I said, we just go get a bunch of Louisville sluggers. We don't even need guns. Just go to the airport, get a one-way ticket down there. We'll take over. We'll just beat the fuck out of them with baseball bats. We'll install me as king, and we'll call it Hanktopia, and then I will put install everybody as everybody who went with me as a, uh, a member of my cabinet down there. And we will have our own kingdom. That's what I think about when I hear about five or six people and we need an invasion <laughs> to kind of keep them in line. But it, seriously, there are countries we could probably take over with a with an armful of uh, drunks from a uh, local tavern and a bunch of baseball bats. Louisville sluggers just go down there. <laughs> All right, this is our country now. We own it. Get the hell out. The, the, my platform is beer. Uh, it's the beer platform. Anyway, this is what drinking will do to you when you're young any thoughts on people's minds phone line is open 1631496 we got about 20 minutes to kill here before i have to get ready for some shows today as i mentioned open up i don't have any uh podcast shows coming up later today because uh i will be out making money this is a musician's uh, day here. In, uh, as it is in New York, and I'm supposing it is in most places in America. Uh, Wednesday before Thanksgiving, gig, big gig night in the bars and taverns and across uh, the land in uh, corporate America. A lot of the corporate gigs in the daytime because places are having office parties. 
and then I have a nursing home gig as well. So I today I have to immediately after this program ends up, kind of pack up and get ready to drive a hundred miles to do a uh, nursing home gig, which I will enjoy. Play an hour acoustic music for uh, some folks in a nursing home. Nice big one that I uh, haven't played in since before, right before the pandemic. So it will be good to be back there. And then I go from there to go play a corporate gig. And then from there to go play uh, the typical Thursday, uh, Thanksgiving Eve uh, show with the band in in a uh, concert hall. So it should be a very, uh, yeah, I actually did a live stream over the summer. We'll probably do uh, a Rockin' 45. I want to do that when we get more original music uh type gigs right now we're doing a lot of coverage this time of year we play a lot of bars doing cover gigs sometimes we do concerts where we do a lot more original music the reason i want to do that is for copyright uh here's the thing why i i kind of started to have this conversation uh earlier in the week i change record labels uh record distributors music distributors because and this happened yesterday I played one of my songs on on the show yesterday or the day before. No, it was yesterday. And I got YouTube strikes. My own publishing company is threatening to sue me, giving me copyright strikes on YouTube for playing my own music, past music. So all the new stuff I'm having is coming out on DistroKid because DistroKid can put my stuff out there without copyright striking. You, It says now my, my YouTube channel is... Under the name Matt Napo, that's the name of the ch- the channel, and the copyright strike says, uh, "This is you are using c- uh, copyrighted material owned by Matt Napo." But I'm Matt Napo. The name of the channel is Matt Napo. I own I. It's my publishing company. <laughs> Hello, and this has been going on for years now. So if we do a live stream concert, I want it to be mostly original music, but I, I got to get it all on DistroKid now. It's away from whoever was doing this stuff. Uh, yeah, uh, well, we will do <laughs> a live stream from a horrific uh, biker bar for sure. We have uh, that coming up right after the year. As a matter of fact, I do have kind of a, uh, uh, a gig that, Fits that description pretty well. Lined up for early in the new year. Uh, that that's a possibility. But again, that's going to be mostly covers. We'll definitely we'll be playing one or two of uh, the originals, that, but for those shows, but not a lot of them. Uh, the biker bar we always play church on Sunday. I, I wonder if I could play that one and and uh, get away with it on on YouTube. Let me see if I do this. I'll look up if I can. Pull church on Sunday then because we this is a, a one of those biker bars. This was taped live at a biker bar. Um that was kind of a pretty off the hook type of uh thing. So let me see if I can find this. I might be able to actually play this if I if I can. Uh without here you go. Let me see this. Yeah, here we go. I'm doing a lot of and while I uh try to get to play my own songs. Can I do this? 
Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Da, 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 da. I'm going to play a song we actually uh, recorded. It's only take. It's a pretty short one. Um, if you'll indulge me here, this was done in one of in one of those biker bars, but an outdoor biker bar, but a biker bar nonetheless. Uh, and it it was a live recording. Um, so, oh no, not not that dummy. Let's see, one more time. Video file. They just change things here on StreamYard about how how you actually do this. So here we go. This is called Church on Sunday.
Uh, there you have it. Ray Tail. It's funny. I'm laughing. I've seen 80 year old ladies there. Ray's Fucking funny stuff. That's an original called Church on Sunday. The whole idea behind that is I played in a country band, uh, playing bass in a country band when, in my 20s. And in that circuit, especially, the bars were filled every Saturday night. We with people who were very church going. Uh, and so I, and I came back to my own upbringing in the Catholic church where I had to basically feel like I had to do a lot of sin and to have something to confess on, on in church. Uh, but the idea that, you know, the church is a packed Saturday night with the same people that are packing the churches on Sunday morning. And so, uh, Old ladies weren't old. You're correct. I a lady last week in a nursing home uh, yelled, and she was a little old lady. She yelled at me before I started my set. She yelled, "Rock and roll!" <laughs> and it's a kind of, I I was kind of taken back for a moment, and then I thought, well, you know, she's the same age as Mick Jagger, and Mick Jagger rocks harder than I do at this point. <laughs> so yeah, no, you're right, Chad. Um, old ladies weren't always so old. Uh, with to your comment, uh, Craig, about behind the scenes of what I do for the podcast, I'm putting together something for that for the Patreon people only. And I know you're one, so uh, well, you will definitely get that. I mean, I'm trying to look for things I can do for the patron people to make the, to show my appreciation for the people who are on Patreon. Uh, but uh, working on that, it's not an easy thing to show, uh, and especially all the fucking administrative bullshit that you have to do to do a podcast. And this is why we're seeing a lot of the people who jumped on the pod podcasting bandwagon because of the pandemic, they're all pod fading now, basically giving up and saying, wow, this is a lot more work uh, than I bargained for. I just wanted to put up a microphone and talk and feel like I was have a radio show. And no, it's, it's a lot of work. Booking uh, the guests, uh, doing the prep, creating the live stream buckets for them, sending out the links, all that kind of stuff, dealing with the publicists. And as I'm sure people who uh, know about my podcast, the Mind Dog TV podcast are aware that when I get no shows, fucking inconsiderate as fuck, man. They don't realize all the work I did to prepare, get ready for them, wait for them, and then they don't show up. And I say, oh, okay, I understand. Things went wrong. We want to reschedule. That's fine. My wife said, uh, and, and I kind of agree on this. Maybe I should start. Okay, uh, any first screw up, uh, no show. Basically, um, if you want to reschedule, there's going to be a rescheduling fee. I don't, I don't charge people to be on the program ever. Uh, but if you're going to screw me up and waste my time. Make me put in a couple of hours of work getting ready for the show, and then you don't show up, and you want to reschedule. You should have to pay me for that time you already wasted for me. I don't know. Uh, is there uh, speaking of I uh, IWA? Is there one this Friday, uh, or did they take off? I don't remember last year after Thanksgiving. Um, Patreon uh, for them is five dollars a month. For it's a what is that sixty dollars a year for uh, four hours per month of or sometimes more of uh, 
probably the funniest uh, podcast and the most escape escapism uh, friendly, you know, just a forget about your troubles and tune into Andy's um, extraordinary experience of, uh, of a ride of life stories in the moment. Uh, precious, precious. Uh, that's something we should all give thanks for. While we're giving thanks, let's give thanks for the Issues with Andy podcast. Uh, while we're pl- plugging, might as well give them a plug too. I think I have one of those, right? It's an old issue, but it's patreon.com slash issues with Andy is where you're going to find that. And believe me, and you can take Chad's word for it too, as well as, as mine. It's uh, worth every penny. Uh, I think Chad even said that. Uh, must have Chad always gets a stream. In, oh, what? After uh, on the Twitch stuff? I don't get the Twitch stuff. I uh, Honestly, um, and maybe it's just because I'm an old man, but I don't get uh, what the Twitch stuff is all about. Basically, we're watching somebody else play because we don't, there was no conversation or very little conversation from what I can gather that goes on there. We were watching somebody play a video game and get high. Not that there's wrong, anything wrong with it. I just don't understand it. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know what, what the attraction is, and I love Chad. You know, I think he's a great guy, and I'm not bashing him in any way. I promise you. I just, I don't get the Twitch thing. And I, I know on Twitch, I think we got one viewer yesterday on Twitch. <laughs> Generally, that's a lot. If I get one viewer on Twitch for an episode, that's one more than I usually get. I have gotten situations where at the end of a, a, a stream, I'll get a report from Twitch. You've had point point three. <laughs> point three viewers on a third of a viewer. What does that <laughs> what does that mean? A short guy? I don't know what the hell a third of a viewer on Twitch means. It's not time based because they give you how many people watched for how long, and I got a third of a viewer watched for three minutes. What the hell is a third of a viewer? Who knows what that means? Anyway, thank you, Jake. Uh, <laughs> for that comment anyway i uh, appreciate you all being here this morning i will be with uh I, if anybody's so inclined while they're cooking their turkey tomorrow morning or preparing their turkey i'm going to be here tomorrow morning because i have a show with hanita hanita I, i'm going to ask her how to pronounce her name uh she is a 17 year old singer songwriter uh from the uk uh she i believe she was uh, born in one of the Scandinavian countries, but has been raised in the UK, a singer-songwriter, uh, Scotland-based. And she has, uh, she's got some original music out now, and she's got a top five pop single. Uh, she's listed in the iTunes charts among Ed Sheeran and people, you know, people who are hit makers. So good for her. Uh, so we'll be exploring that at 7 a.m. my time. Then I'll be doing coffee with the dog at 8, 8 to 10 uh, while I uh, I, baste, I baste my bird. Uh, so if you're going to be basting your bird, I want to hear about it. Baste your bird with me. Uh, you know, stuff, stuff that old turkey with me. Um, how can I say this with a little bit more sexual in, innuendo involved in this? I don't know. 
just butter it up and <laughs> lube it up, lube up the bird and shove it in the old uh, oven. But I'm, I'm, I got nothing, folks. <laughs> uh, my mind is on getting ready for these gigs, so uh, I hope you'll you'll spend some uh, keep me. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I know. I've been trying to get uh, you know, Erica. Th- thank you for this. Uh, uh, Chad, I know she's uh, um, very funny, and I've been in contact with her. Haven't actually popped the question if she wants to be on the uh, podcast, but I know she does respond very well to when I uh, comment back on her uh, tweets, and she she laughs at some of my jokes. So maybe that's a possibility. I do. I have been thinking about uh, getting Erica on the on the program. Um, yeah, I'm going to try and make that happen. Uh, meanwhile, I uh, alluded to a guest before I sign off here. Alluded to a guest that I've been uh, really wanting to get on here. Now, this might be too old for, for you folks, the reference here. Uh, comedy hero of mine from my my youth, David Steinberg, who's got a book out called Inside Comedy. Um working with his um, manager publishers to get him on the program. Uh, that will be an interesting one, but more for the boomers, the old people like me who, who know him. I'm interested. I wonder if you guys even know much about David Sandberg. He's been a director in uh, a lot of TV shows. He's a writer, stand-up comedian from the, uh, from his roots. He was a stand-up comedian in the sixties and seventies out of Canada based uh, but uh, made a splash in the 1960s, late 1960s, uh, was responsible in a lot of ways for the Smothers Brothers getting canceled by CBS, doing uh, his uh, satirical sermons on their program. So looking forward to get David Steinberg on the program. But yes, I would love to get some uh, more contemporary comedians and especially some of the ladies on. Uh Oh, I don't, I don't know about Belzer. That's funny. That's a, that's a funny um, confusion there. Ken, Ken says I always confuse them with Belzer. Uh, I don't get that connection. But I mean, other than the, the Jewish stuff, David Steinberg, um, much, much more. Um, I don't know white bread than Belzer. Belzer's in New York. It, <laughs> I get, you know, strong New York vibe. Uh, Steinberg is definitely uh, has a, a bit more of a Canadian vibe, which is to me a little, a little white, a little more white bread than a New York guy. Uh, but okay. Anyway, uh, so hopefully get David Steinberg on soon. Hopefully we'll be working on getting Erica Rhodes on. I hope you guys will spend at least a few moments with me tomorrow if you're available. If not, I totally understand. There's no obligation to be here with me and hold my hand during these uh, these insane sessions where I just keep talking. Uh, hoping that <laughs> for somebody to talk to. It was a pleasure to talk to Michael uh, Hillier today. Uh, check out the Red Line podcast. So that's all for now. Uh, I'll be on tomorrow at 7 a.m., starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. I know you people will still be sleeping. Uh, but if you can join me at any chance between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., I would appreciate it. So until then, have a great day. I'm going to enjoy one more cup of coffee before I go hit the road and play some music. Have a great day. Bye for now.